1: Welcome, Quindla,
2: to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Quindla Holtman Kramer. I'm one of the founders of a startup called Daily, and we make video APIs. Uh, we make it really easy to embed uh, real time video communications into any website or app.
1: Great, right, thank you. And uh, so you mentioned Quindla Zulu, um, and it was quite funny because when I first saw it, I did think it was African. And I thought, you know, maybe it's a, a like a, another another European language I hadn't heard before. So. So where did where did that come from? Because it's unusual.
2: My parents are journalists. And since yeah. before I was born, they've done lots of work with colleagues in Africa and they focused on reporting about Africa for the U.S. audience, especially but globally. Yep. And when I was born, they had a, a South African friend uh, living with them in their, in their, uh, in their house, and uh, he suggested the name Quindla, which means autumn in Zulu, and they really liked it. Oh, wow.
1: That's awesome. I'm getting goosebumps. Because I, I recognize the name, but I, I recognize the word, but I couldn't think what it meant. So that's, that's awesome. And, and it's unusual, because normally what would happen in South Africa is that you know if, you, if you're born in, in whichever tribe, they would have a, a tribal name, and then they'd have the English name. So you'd meet the Precious or the, sure, you know, whatever. And then the other name would be like Overking or Tabor or Sipo or sure. whatever it is. Sure. And, and you'd only find out, like, uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine that I've, from school today. And for years, I've known him as Malcolm. And he said, well, actually, you know, my real name is Oberking. And I was like, but for years, I asked you what your real name was. And you always told me it was Malcolm. And he's like,
2: yeah, I know. but But, you know, I'm finally comfortable telling people. So I was like, okay, well, it's cool. You know, sometimes it's easier. A lot of people call me Quinn because Quinn shortens to Quinn. And that's sure. really it's really easy to introduce yourself as Quinn. It takes a little more work to introduce yourself with a less common name. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so we were talking
1: just before we started about your all Africa connection. Um, do you want to maybe tell us a bit about that and,
2: and go from there? Sure. So I, I was at graduate school at the MIT Media Lab in the late 1990s. I was really lucky to to be at the Media Lab in the when the kind of internet and the Internet of Things were getting built out. It was a great opportunity. Uh, but my parents, who had done uh, journalism work for forever and ever, um, were were starting to put their work online and starting to collaborate really closely with colleagues in Africa all over the continent, getting African journalism out to a global audience using Mm. the internet and uh, digital content distribution networks. Um, So I took a leave of absence from grad school to help build the tech stack for that effort, which is called All Africa uh and i never ended up going back to grad school i had a really really fulfilling experience at all africa and then i uh did a couple of consulting gigs and then i uh did a did a startup and now i'm doing another startup and you know maybe one day i can go back and get that phd
1: yeah yeah i it's funny I, I, Not not your story but obviously i i dropped out of university as well for a project and i went back eight years later oh wow to finish it off, and um also, when I was studying, there was a there was a rule that if you didn't finish a degree in seven years, uh, you had to start it again. Oh wow! Uh, all your all your credits expired, and then I dropped out because I was failing, and I was you know the work was more important than the studying. You know, typical thing. I was telling one of my staff today that I actually would go at three o'clock in the morning, open my maths textbook to go write the exam at nine o'clock, and that'd be the first time I'd actually even looked at the work. Um, and she's like, "Wow, you're so clever." I was like, "No, no, you're missing the point. I was working so hard on the project." that I didn't care about the studying and that, you know, that was the bad thing. But, you know, going back and finishing it, um, we they changed the law and you could actually get your credits and any prior learning. So you could actually, your guys are writing theses and basically getting their credits to go and finish their degrees. It was just a way to obviously, you know, let people be recognised for what they've done. So do you think you're, you're going to do it? I mean, you think maybe when you get that retirement age, you're going to do it, be that that, that old guy in the back of the class doing the, the last couple of credits?
2: It's one of the things on my retirement list, you know, all the projects you save up for that distant future when you're retired. It's a good thing to have. It's a good thing to have. So we were talking about you
1: having your your TV set up, and your it was one of your first projects for for daily, uh, and maybe start off with where the name came from for daily. Um, sure.
2: Well, we we you know knew we wanted to build a video stack uh, because yeah. I'd always been interested in large scale network systems and real time. Communications, even from from very early on, when you could barely do that stuff on the public internet. Yeah, uh, and in 2014 sort of 14, 15, after I'd finished up a previous startup and was thinking about what I wanted to do next, uh, that I really thought an inflection point was coming where video was going to be everywhere. And yeah. I really enjoy building video tools from an engineering <coughs> perspective. And and anytime you think some big inflection point is coming, you know that's a fun thing to sort of throw yourself into uh, from multiple perspectives. Um, Commercial and uh, technical and social, and yeah. uh, so we started building on top of a pretty new standard called WebRTC because we thought WebRTC would be part of what would catalyze, you know, the ability to, you know, as we, as as I just did to talk to you, open up a web browser, click on a link, and I'm in a video call. Yeah. Um. So we were one of the first, you know, kind of full WebRTC video stacks, but we were still really early in terms of being able to distribute that stuff to end users. Um, the, the implementations in the browsers weren't that stable. They were changing all the time. Uh, everything was new, so we thought, okay, what can we ship? Because I really believe in shipping stuff. Like if you're a startup, you want to ship as much stuff as you can, as quickly as you can, to learn from the market. And we thought, well, we could bundle up this WebRTC video and audio communication stack into a little piece of hardware, into a little appliance, and we could uh, we could kind of unlock video and audio in any conference room at a very affordable price. And this was before you could buy hardware from Zoom or from Google Meet doing that. So our first product was actually a little plug it plug it into the TV and it just works video conferencing appliance. And we got really good early adoption for that, uh, and we learned a lot about making video work in the real world, no matter what the network quality was, uh, no matter how you know new <laughs> to this use case users were. So I'm really glad we did it we ultimately didn't think that the hardware based product was the the path we wanted to take to build a, a venture backed scale business so we eventually end of life the hardware product and just focused on the video apis using the same technology stack uh, but we definitely went through this you know kind of funny route of originally shipping a hardware product before focusing entirely on developer software
1: how long ago was that sorry i'm trying to place the time that was
2: 2016
1: yeah and I can understand why you're going hardware at that point, because there wasn't much, if I think about it, and, and I mean, you know, a lot happened in five years in technology, but there wasn't that much easily access, accessible platforms to use. I mean, iPads had probably just come out two, three years before that. You know, Raspberry Pis and that sort of stuff were pretty pretty weak when they were coming out. Now they're pretty powerful for what they are. So, you know, your need to build hardware was there. Nowadays, you could probably use anything. That's right. Because um, the software has become... But that's that's the barrier, now. which is a
2: great. I mean, it's it's a great curve for us. I mean, I, I, yeah. we were we were a little earlier than we thought we were, as I think you often are in a startup. Um, but we, I think, we were directionally right about the curves and the curves that mm-hmm. really mattered for us were power of hardware, as you're talking about. Yeah. So CPUs and GPUs just got faster and faster, and you you can do video on any device now, which is makes video ubiquitous. Yeah. The quality of the network connection. So having you know having pretty good wi-fi routers pretty good last mile internet really good global internet routing mm. and even ubiquitous cellular data connections means you can have video anywhere and then the underlying software you know enablers like video uh, apis built into the web browser um, like being able to use uh, the same WebRTC stack that google builds into the web browser in our native mobile sdks like all of those sort of core standards pieces are also really important.
1: Yeah, I was actually, when you mentioned browsers, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the, the Chrome browser must have come out around then as, as as the quality, you know, not everyone was using it because you still had IE running around, but there was that switch over. I think HTML5 was also just bedding in as well, which also was quite a big jump.
2: The big unlock for us in terms of being able to ship a developer toolkit for video that really had kind of no no constraints on the market was Apple supporting WebRTC and Safari. And that Ah, happened at the end of 2018. Uh, And Apple, to their credit, supported both desktop and mobile Safari, reasonably well then, although not not as well as Chrome. So one of the values we provided, especially then but even now, for developers is abstracting across the differences between the browser.
0: Okay.
1: That's interesting. Was was this around the time when when did Flash go? I don't think when Flash left the market. Yeah, because that, that was
2: the that was the thing, the wasn't Jones it? Announced the end of Flash. I, it was it was it was before that, but it did take a while to to yeah. reverberate re- re- through the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, because that was always the thing is that you, you you thought you had to use Flash to do video and stuff, and then Silverlight came along, and neither one of those were really good. So you ended up with HTML5, and and obviously the JavaScript stuff started coming through as well. But I think your, your point around the internet connectivity was probably the hugest part because, and, and, and you know, the US obviously has had the T ones and the T threes and, and the E one lines, and the rest of the world was still on ADSL, uh, and then there was that switch to fiber, which you know rapidly progressed a lot of things, and then obviously now we've got four G and then five G coming through. Now, it's it's amazing how it's also inter- interconnected, but you take for granted that you do not even think about it anymore until you and, don't have
2: it, and things do happen at different paces in different places. I mean, the, the rest of the world has has leapfrogged the U.S. in cellular data. I think we're actually catching up now. I think, I think cellular data is pretty good in the U.S. now. But definitely yeah. for a period there in, you know, 2015, 16, 17, I think many places around the world had much better cellular data than the U.S. did
1: yeah yeah. Well, I was chatting to to um the guys from Medify a couple of weeks ago and they were telling me about the one guy lives in the mountains and he and he was telling he built a about a hardware component because he was struggling with connectivity and I was down in South Africa when I spoke speaking to them and you know because of load shedding uh which obviously knocks out the the cell phone towers and and the fiber um you can notice we see your drop from 5g down to three uh, like this so your video just goes and it's' It's almost scary to think thought that we've become so used to this ability just to have a Teams call, have a FaceTime call, have a, you know, the fact that someone phones you normally, you kind of go, why are they phoning me normally? You know, what, what, the, what, what, the, what they want me to know? That if you,
2: if you don't have the connectivity, it kind of becomes an anxiety thing. It does. Shape. And, you know, as you were saying, things happen. Oh, I think the Bill Gates quote is, uh, uh, that we refer to a lot is less happens in a year than you expect and more happens in 10 years than you can imagine and that's that's really true when we were you know first raising money for daily uh probably 80 80 percent of the venture investors we talked to would say something like oh video you know i I get it but i just don't think it's going to be mass market like people just like the telephone like i don't really turn on my camera in video calls and our, we would always just say, great, you know, you're not the right fit for us because yeah. we see this trajectory, we see how things are gonna change. That's just not gonna be true in five years. And if you don't believe it now, you're not the right investor for us. Um, but just imagine you know, a world where video is easy and ubiquitous, that's not gonna be the reaction. The reaction is gonna be exactly what you had. Like, why did you phone me? Like, I'm on WhatsApp with you, I'm on Slack with you, I have, you know, Calendly links that have video calls built in. Like, that's the norm, not the phone call. Yeah, no, exactly.
1: And um, I, was, I was just thinking about it. You know, I was talking to a call center of a friend of mine. Who, well, he runs a call center. And I was asking him, like, like, how long until call centers start doing it on video? And he said, well, you know, we've got clients that want to do it on call center. They, 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 well, not not the, sorry, not the clients want to do it. Their clients are asking them, why can I not to just like book the appointment so I can do a, a, a face-to-face call with somebody to sort my issue out. And they just don't get up for it yet. And that's probably more an issue with with the old model of trying to trying to do uh you know how many minutes per call um to solve a problem, which, you know, if you do video calls not gonna be that it's not gonna be as quick.
2: It's um, partly it's partly training of the yeah. staff. It's partly Technology moves more slowly in the larger enterprise markets, uh, usually. Sometimes, sometimes not, but usually. Um, and it's partly just inertia. Like it just takes time uh for things to move over. But we've got a bunch of customers who do customer support on top of daily's APIs, do video customer support. And it's okay. always the it's the high value use cases that lead. Yes. So it's, you know, you you're a fintech company, you your biggest customers, you want to talk to them on video for a couple of yeah. reasons. One is it gives you that deeper connection so they feel like they're getting white glove service another is you want to make sure it's them and it's yeah. harder i mean not for long you've done a bunch of interesting episodes about you know generative ai recently but it's harder to spoof video than it is other you know other communication modes um and well, the third thing is kyc so know your customer. so yeah. often you have to have seen somebody either in person or on video to say open a bank account for them and there are protocols and reg- regulatory requirements around that. So video leads in the you know kind of quote unquote high end use cases, and then as we know, all that stuff kind of becomes an expectation and goes goes mass market.
1: Yeah, and 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 uh, it's funny. I'm reading a book series at the moment, and it's a really good series. I'd really recommend it. Um, and it's a lot of it is around the use of deepfakes mm. and and how that is used to manipulate the pop pu- the the public. And I'd already give the whole plot away and, and I'll recommend the, the books once I remember what the titles are. But what was, what was quite scary about it is, you know, at the time I'm reading this this book and this, these are books were written maybe four years ago, three years ago. So let's say call it pre-chat GDP uh, for most people. A lot of the things that they this guy's bringing out in his stories are like, wow, this is actually so possible right now. You could actually have this thing happening and it's, you know, Putting a whole country against a person because you show a video of them killing somebody and it's a deep fake but how do you prove it's a deep fake yeah because it's six cameras and it's you know pictures and the, you know, the evidence is irrefutable considering how we've grown up in our in our lives of a picture speaks a thousand words and you're locked in and you know part of the story is about how these hackers are able to over time detect that they're generated but it's like Finding out there's a reflection that's not cor- not correct on a piece of glass in the in the fake that's obviously been generated and it's been missed by the AI when it generated that you know it's that kind of sophistication which is kind of what everyone talks about now when when ChatGDP makes a mistake they're like oh yeah but it's it's just because it's a language model doesn't have a clue but when it generates an image then you can see kind of where it's made a mistake because it doesn't know that the shadow should go to the left not the right as an example.
2: I don't yeah. have your thoughts on that. all that stuff is evolving so quickly. I mean, for us, we we concentrate on live video, and you're still probably computationally bound. It's it's pretty computationally yeah. intensive to generate completely synthetic live video, but it's not that far away. It's coming, and so you know we 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 think a lot about what these new tools are going to do to our world. We have internally we have a, a kind of video AI toolkit that we're gearing up to release so that people can plug agents into video calls uh, and we think we've done some really fun stuff and we think that's, uh, you know, that's going to be something a lot of people are really interested in it, as a, you're right that as a society, we're going to have to figure out how to think about these new tools and they're coming maybe more quickly than, than other new tools have in recent memory. So we've got oh, some testing yeah. to do. Uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean,
1: I, you know, muscle bands are saying that's, that's uh, what's considered like the retirement area of the country. In South Africa. So your average age is like 75, 80. And, you know, you're sitting with people who hardly use cell phones. Now you're trying to explain to them that you can generate a whole book by writing five sentences and talking to this machine that's sitting in the cloud and it's returning back to you content that's probably 60%, 70%, 80% relevant to what you were trying to achieve. And they're thinking about writing a book takes five years and you're talking maybe 20 minutes. So the mass populace, you know, is 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 across the whole spectrum in in that respect to, to adopting these things. So, uh, yeah, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the scary thing is people aren't aren't mentally ready for this stuff. Uh, never mind, bull
2: I do think the social use cases are really interesting and are as always with new technology being talked about less than the things that are kind of initially obvious. But we're we're definitely at sure. the faster horses, not cars, stage of use cases yeah. for this stuff. Yeah. And like I. There's a uh, one of our investors, Root Ventures, has a portfolio company that's building generative AI assets for video okay. games. And yeah. I mean, that's just going to be huge. Like video games are going to be unrecognizable five years from now because they're yeah. just going to be so much more rich and deep from a social perspective. It's the same kind of qualitative shift as single player to multiplayer games. Now we have single player and multiplayer and large scale multiplayer environments where most of the players are not people and yeah. how that evolves is going to be fascinating and rich and really a like a compelling way to spend our time and i think that's a good thing and an interesting oh. thing
1: without a doubt and i mean you were saying the, the sort of you know generating things on the fly real time i mean if you look at the ability to have an avatar that's your face in your call uh, I don't, there's a very good book. Uh, it's called shift. I think written by a, a, a woman professor here at, uh, um, I don't know what her name is now. Liz, someone, uh, and, and she starts the book perfectly where she says, you wake up in the morning for your call and you're in your pajamas. And instead of getting dressed and having a shower, you just go into a call and your avatar is in the right, the right, uh, clothing. And you do your call for 20 minutes and you go brush your teeth and you have your coffee and you start your day. Visibly that's possible now. Uh, you know, and as an answer, question around if if you've going to video, what are your feelings on the, on the sort of multiverse AR VR world? Do you think that's going to now become the next step, or do you think that's kind of only for certain use cases, certain situations?
2: So I think as technology improves, augmented reality has all kinds of applications, and mm. you know, if if we all could wear glasses with augmented reality built in all the time, we absolutely would. It's it's just the next evolution of the smartphone i'm more skeptical that vr is where we want to spend most of our time for the foreseeable future because i think the technology hurdles for making vr comfortable and immersive at the same time are large it's great Mm -hmm. for games Uh, i personally haven't seen a workspace implementation in vr that i think is great but I also might be like those venture investors I was talking about who didn't like to turn the cameras on during video calls. And I always try to like hold that possibility very clearly in my mind that maybe I'm just not catching up or keeping up. But I do think that, you know, so we were talking a little bit just before uh, we started recording that like I do all my, not all, but most of my video calls, like sitting on a couch, looking at a really big TV, because to me, that's the right combination of good ergonomics, uh, good engagement, and immersion. Plus, I can work on my laptop sitting on my lap on the couch while I'm like fully present as well with the big yeah. TV screen that's 10 feet away. And i don't have you know meeting fatigue because you know my eyes are focusing at like a natural focus distance not looking at a little screen and so there's all these factors that just make that the right thing so i personally feel like i have a pretty high bar for vr glasses to be better than that for the kind of work i do yeah but things will change over time i mean the vr glasses are going to get better and there's going to be a co-evolution with the hardware technology of the workspace environments and i you know, I'm I'm an engineer by training. I can certainly imagine a completely immersive coding environment that's only possible with VR glasses. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but that doesn't mean somebody's not going to build it. Um, so, I do try to pay attention to to VR, and we have customers who are doing kind of really fun metaverse video stuff on top of daily. Mm. They use they use our APIs for all the video and a lot of the networking and messaging, and then they use you know the the 3D environment to build their their world that's you know that's that's created that's not just the video components and that's really fun for us to see what our customers are doing i I don't personally spend much time with vr glasses on today no it's
1: i mean i've got a friend who wants me to join him on a meeting once a week in vr and 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 it's been as like a year of i'll buy it next month kind of it's just not a priority i think i think this kind of interaction as you say is sufficient for for 99 of the people um, where it would be really interesting is sort of that really Player One experience where you're wearing a suit and you put the, the headset on and you're actually fully immersed. You can feel everything is tactile. And then if you're doing things like you know, something as basic as Pilates or or learning your your golf swing or something like that with someone in another country through this environment, that, that would be a great way or any sort of training would make sense. But I, I, to me, it's
2: kind of that niche space still. No, but I agree with you about industrial applications. So training, um, medical, uh, complicated Mm. mechanical, like aircraft engine maintenance. I mean, I think there's going to be really, really interesting stuff there. I do think a lot of that stuff is going to fall on the AR side of the AR VR device, Um, but it's going to be super interesting to see the evolution of that stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, with your your work in the video world, I mean, are, are you integrating that with augmented reality as well and, and the sense of interactive space? Like it, if, if someone's using your APIs, are they able to like click there and see the, I don't know,
2: the overlay of the, of the, the plan for that component or something like we, that? We give you messaging APIs so that you can send structured data around ah, and okay. you can timestamp that with the video so that you end up being, you know, we are the sort of low level building blocks for you to build that AR application.
1: Yeah, uh, we didn't answer the question. Where the where did the name Daily come from?
2: Oh, yeah, you know, we were originally called something else. We we uh we picked a California farmers market name, Pluot, which is a apricot wow. plum. I read like a good fruit. You know, tech companies that are fruit named have like a good good track record. And then you know we should have <laughs> done some more market research because nobody outside California could either spell it or or pronounce it if they read it like confidently. Makes yeah. for a bad name, uh, so we eventually I was stubborn, but eventually we decided we had to change the name to something just a little easier. And one of our one of our venture investors owned the domain name daily.co. He, he owned a lot of domain names, and he let us like look through the list and and pick one, and that that's how we ended up with daily. I really like it. I think it's a kind of an, uh, a a happy, open ended word that we can fill up with a bunch of meaning.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and, and it's. It's, um, I mean, you can interpret it in, in, in what you're doing to say, well, you know, it's about real-time videos, so daily, use it every day, you know, it's yeah. part of the, the ecosystem that we all live in now. I mean, in fact, I would probably say people spend more time talking to each other on video than they do watching TV, if you, if you sort of were to control that comparison for the last 10 years
2: that's definitely true i mean one of the mind-blowing stats i remember from kind of fairly early on actually in our evolution was I have a friend who's a vp of engineering at roblox and he shared us their internal Mm -hmm. stats about how how many of their users have roblox open on their computer screen and then have a phone with you know facetime or whatsapp with a video call with their friends next to the keyboard and it was just some huge percentage and that you know, that's kids using technology in a way that we all will be using technology by the time those kids are you know in the workforce, uh, and that really kind of shaped some of my thinking about this stuff.
1: Yeah, when you mentioned your hardware component, I was thinking about the the Amazon Echo, what what it, uh, shows I think they're called shows, mm-hmm. and, and we bought a whole bunch of them. We've never used them, but I mean they are they are in theory the kind of thing that you could just use to say, hey, call Dad, and that's it connects right. straight away, and you're you're connected without all the other stuff
2: you have to do. When I was a kid, like a phone call with grandparents was like a pretty special pretty thing, and yeah. now we do FaceTime with my kids' grandparents, you know, just all the time, and it's yep. really great. Like it's much more immersive; you feel more connected. You re- you read books to each other, you do piano lessons that way. It's it's like a real change. Yeah, no,
1: I, it, like I said, it's scary to lose it. Now, you said 12 time zones, that's where you, you've got people all over the world. How, does, how did that happen? Is that always by design?
2: You know, we really leaned into being all remote from pretty early on. Uh, yeah. One one thing we thought was that we have really specialized engineering work we do. Like We have a lot of low-level networking and video codec type work. And it's great to be able to hire people no matter where they are in the world. And work with mm. people no matter where the, where they are in the world. Now the the trade off there is that you have to deal with time zones. Um, there's a little bit of a filter for people who are happy working, you know, from home or remotely. Not yeah. everybody. You know, some people really want to come work in an office, and I totally understand that. So you just have to find the right fit. But you know, we we hire mostly engineers and mostly really experienced people. And being able to hire people who don't have to be close enough to drive into an office every day is such a huge uh, such a huge advantage. I also like personally working with people from all over the world. I think you get like such a great flexibility of perspectives uh, in your your world every day. And, you know, tech in San Francisco is like, I live in San Francisco uh, because it's kind of the global capital of, of, of technology. Um, And that's, I think, an advantage for a company to have some people here. But, you know, tech in San Francisco is not known for being the most diverse in terms of perspectives uh and so balancing that out with a global team i think works really well no i think you're 100 right um you know we've spent
1: in the last two years probably 20 months back in south africa Mm -hmm. and when you see what people the problems they have to solve versus living in the uk which is obviously a different environment completely and the mindset shifts and and that diversity i mean you know, forget about you know the usual things people say like race and, and, and gender and, and all that kind of stuff. It's more the problems that people have grown up with and how they've had to solve them. And and the, you know, therefore, the way they think about things and, and all that kind of stuff, that's huge. And and I think you've probably solved problems you didn't even realize that were problems because you've had diversity like that, Whereas if you've been a normal company, you probably you would have had problems that you would have struggled with, if that makes
2: sense. I mean, if you want to serve a global population of customers, you need yeah. to have that global perspective. I mean, the one of the examples that is top of mind for us all the time, just because we support a lot of platforms, is so much pull for our Flutter SDK from India. And if we Okay, yeah, you know, if we were only in, you know, the United States, I think the the interest in Flutter would be, you know, much, much lower. We would be less, it would take us a yeah. lot longer to figure sure. out that, you know, we've got to have first class Flutter support.
1: No, hundred um, percent. And I mean, I tried to learn how to, to write stuff in Flutter, and it was quite a quite a stretch. Um, it's but, different. It's interesting. It, yeah, it, it, exactly. It's interesting. It's, it's a different way of working. And, and when I was looking for resources, I only got resources out of India that knew it. Everyone else kind of gone down the other route, which was um, before Microsoft bought it, uh, Zanium. Yeah, mm, um, yeah, Which, yeah, which yeah. is now uh, Maui, I think. And, and yeah, com- you know that's a much more comfortable place to be with Maui versus Flutter. But if you're looking to build product and a new one as a startup, you're going to go where you need the, the sort of cheaper resources. You're not going to find many people that do uh, Maui for cheap. So yeah, I can understand that. And that was kind of my point about the diversity thing, but you picked up on that. Um, so with you working in multiple time zones and having this diversity, how have you managed to ship all the time? Is it, is it background automation? Is there
2: of communication. I mean, what's the sort of working patterns of the, the people? I think we have a pretty good set of communications heartbeats at the company. So we you know we work a lot in Slack for uh, semi-synchronous and async text and we document really we, we, we try really hard to document everything we're doing pretty well. We use a combination of notion and linear and then a you know mm-hmm. grab bag of other random bits of tooling. And then we're on video all the time with each other. And we use our own tools. We use our customers tools that are built on top of daily. So uh, I spend a lot of time in video, both kind of scheduled and ad hoc. Um, And that's useful for us on a lot of levels. Uh, It connects us closely as a team, even though we're very distributed. It also lets us dog food our own tech. Um, It's important. Our releases all get tested pretty heavily from our internal use before, before they go live. And then just really, you know, trying to trying to be good engineers, right? Like we we have a lot of really experienced engineers on our team, and so we've inherited kind of best practices and perspective from people who've worked at you know lots of different places and uh, both been very successful and learned lots of hard lessons as you do in a long career. So we we invested pretty heavily in good testing. We have you know it's hard to test things like live video. Um, yeah, so we have imagine. what we call our robots uh, that are kind of the the CICD, uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery equivalent for the stuff we do. Um, and you know we're fairly conservative in the ways that matter. I think we try to use very well understood technologies everywhere. We're not where we're not building something brand new, right? So like we have our own kind of very I think sophisticated and innovative media server code that routes the video and audio packets around the world really fast. And we think that's a unique advantage for us where we're not, you know, kind of leveraging that advantage. We try to use things like vanilla SQL databases and, you know, Mm. just very, very well understood technology, partly because uptime matters so much in our world. Like if, if we're down for a minute, our customers know there's no, you know, there's no margin for error. Um, so we try very hard, you know, nobody can possibly achieve 100% uptime, but we aim, you know, very much towards 100% uptime um, all over the world in all the data centers where we have clusters. And,
1: and your, your messaging that you mentioned, that is, that's obviously a part of it to some extent. I mean, are you doing something through brokers or have you got
2: uh, <laughs> um, some of, some of low latency sort of thing? Yeah, so we use a combination of WebRTC data channels and WebSockets under the covers. Okay. Yeah. Um and for for coordination, we have our own service mesh effectively under the covers. It's kind of an HTTP based uh, coordination framework. We did write that ourselves, but we tried not to. We've we built on top of you know, I think we built built a production version and then a set of prototypes on top of four different non-home-built service meshes before we built our own. Um long term, I, you know, I don't have a prediction as to where we'll go with that as we scale because as we continue to scale, the problems change, right? Like that's one of the one of the interesting yeah. things about infrastructure is you have this like really difficult premature optimization problem, right? You like you need to predict what your scale is going to be and be out ahead of it, but you also need to not, you know, build try to build what Google needs because it's going to be a long time before you need yep. what Google needs. And that's, you know, that's back to that engineering judgment. Like we, all of us collectively have built some version of everything we have in production at daily, at least once before in our career, before we built it at daily. Um, and that turns out to be really helpful. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because
1: I was thinking about that as you were talking, I mean, this is obviously something that you've been doing, you know, from all Africa, through to now, it's a, it's a, it's a common theme, repeating, repeating, repeating. And I would, I would assume that the technology things we talked about at the different speeds that they move have helped you to refine and improve on the, on the idea and kind of given you almost a navigation on where to go next. I mean, do you feel like you could just do this until you die in the sense of the next, however many decades you got left? Cause it would just keep, you know, the technology would keep pro- keep improving. So you'll just have new things to incorporate and think about and design. and or, Yeah. Or
2: it stays interesting to me, and yeah. you know, I have friends who have kind of moved to the hot new thing each time there's a hot new thing. Yeah. So you know, I I'm old enough to remember, as you were saying, when like uh, you know JavaScript-based applications became possible, and then you know social mobile local was the hot thing, and then there was a machine learning thing, and then there was you know Web three, and now there's AI, and I think all those things are super interesting too. But my Just the way I'm wired, I'm more sort of layering them into the 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 kind of real time networking and real time communication stuff that stays interesting to me. And I think everybody's different, and that's one of the things I think you learn managing people over time. You know, I very early in my career, like it was really hard for me whenever anybody wanted to leave a team I was on, and Mm. I had trouble being empathetic. Like I, I think you know what we're doing is really interesting. Like, why do you want to go do the next thing? And over time, I learned that that's actually okay and healthy, right? Like people people will move on from jobs. They'll find new challenges. Sometimes they need new challenges and that is totally okay. And it's your job. If you hire people, if you manage people, it's your job to be as supportive as you can on the way in to your team and on the way out of your team. And careers are long. People need different things at different points in their careers. And that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, you're hundred percent right. And
1: and I was the same as you, to be honest. Um, you know, when people used to leave my team, I'd be like, "What's wrong with you guys? We're doing like this awesome stuff." And they'd be like, "Yeah, but uh, you know, too too many hours, or it's not the right thing, or whatever it is." And you know, over time, you, you do get used to it, and you actually you almost want to push people along to to do their own thing and find that that thing that makes them happy, because it's you know makes in the end it's the right thing for them, but it also
2: it's a maturity thing for yourself if you totally i mean i think as a general life rule i think that if you're not getting more empathetic as you grow older you're doing it wrong it, exactly exactly um but now you're talking about something and i remember when i looked at,
1: looked up your profile there was something about you should w- find a job
2: that your job is to fire yourself oh um, yeah i've been making some like so i you know i get a lot out of conversations with other startup founders yeah. and you know, I try to block out time, even though life is crazy and it's hard to find time to, you know, have breakfast or lunch or coffee with like a friend or an acquaintance who's doing startup stuff, you know, kind of same stage we are oh, a couple times a month. Sometimes I fail at doing that, but when I succeed, I always feel like that's time really well spent because you just talk about kind of the the challenges you have trying to grow a company. and. Yeah you know, I'm on social media, but I historically don't do a lot of social media posting, but I thought, you know, these, this principle that these kind of conversations are valuable, I'm just kind of curious how it translates to social media. So I've been doing these kind of asynchronous founder coffee chats, which are really just monologues, right? But they're, they're an attempt to sort of figure out how this thing might, might work in, in the, in the TikTok world for lack of a better term. And that, that was a recent post that you're talking about that I, I was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about how if you're lucky enough that your company is growing, then your job is to fire yourself from whatever you're doing now as soon as you can, because somebody else can probably do do it better than you can. Mm. And you probably have a new challenge, which you probably can't easily hand over to somebody else. So the the positive side of that is there's always something new and interesting to, to, to learn the negative thing potentially is like, I really like writing code, for example, like I, you know, it's one of the things that makes me happy in a startup environment is that there's a lot of engineering to do. Well, I don't get to do production engineering anymore because I shouldn't be in the loop for anything we ship, you know, on a deadline. And so that's a little bit bittersweet, right? I, like I, I had to, you know, and you have to consciously fire yourself. I think you can't just kind of try to have a foot in both worlds, not, very, very long. So I, that the framing for me is like, you have to like, look for the places where you have to, you know, m- remove yourself. So you're, that you're not a bottleneck as your company continues to grow. And the, like this, the, the, the title of the social media post, you know, the clickbait title is your job is to fire yourself.
1: Oh, and I think it's a hundred percent wrong. Um, I, I, uh, I used to say you need, no one's, ex- no one's, um, everyone's expendable um was and and i see lots of trouble for saying that and i mean and i used to you know the logic was always that what you're saying is that that it's not about so much that you should be comfortable in the role and, and therefore a dual role forever it's more a case of you need to realize that you've got to you there'll always be someone better than you at that at that thing so you should be looking at it objectively and saying, well actually i'm probably not the best person for this job let's hire someone else and let me go do something else 100 to what you're saying and um you know, I'm building something on this at the moment, and it's it's one of the first decisions I made was to say I'm not going to be the product owner of this thing. I, I need to hire someone to do it because I know if it sits with me, it'll take five years to get built because it won't be front and center all the time. And we've made great progress because of that. And you know, as I keep looking at things that I'm doing, it's exactly that. Like what what do I need to give up to to bring in? Um, and I, and I like the model logs. Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't watched all of them, but uh, I think. I think it's important for you, for people like yourself to share it for people that are, you know, trying to figure this stuff out and they're not sure who to ask. Because um, that's the hardest thing is who do you ask?
2: Who do you talk to about this stuff sometimes? Yeah, it's just like a collection of stories about lived experience, right, that I find yeah. most valuable when I talk to other people. And, I mean, uh, I, I think advice is really hard to give, but stories are really valuable. And, and then, you, you know, you can take whatever… It might or might not be applicable uh from the stories other people tell to your own particular situation i mean one of the ways i judge investors having worked at this point with a lot of different investors over my career is do they understand the difference between giving you you know the 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 benefit of their pattern matching versus mm-hmm. giving you advice um because yeah. they you know out somebody outside your company never knows enough to run your company for you. Like it would be easier if they did, right? That that would be great. (laughs) Um, But they often do have like huge amounts of valuable like pattern matching experience. They could be like, oh, well, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, this time I was on this company's board and we talked about this problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think
1: the the, view there around the story versus the advice comes from your folks being journalists (laughs) or being in, in the African ecosystem?
2: I mean, I think everything comes from my parents being journalists. Like I just think that perspective that they have about how like everyone's story is important and everybody's experience is valuable and, you know, bridging the gap between, you know, people in different places in the world and different times and different circumstances is like a like a, a way to spend your life that is fulfilling. Like that has such a big impact on me.
1: Yeah, huge. I, I, you know, I can see it, and, and the reason why I asked that question the way I did it, is because I was having this discussion uh, with a few people in in SA about and everything we do is always a, always a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found when I moved to the UK and I was in the Middle East and whatever, the people you got on with were the people that liked to tell stories, mm-hmm. and the people that you didn't get on with were the people that didn't like to tell stories. They wanted the the, the sort of the, the pattern matching advice or the logical approach, if you like you know keeping it abstract and that kind of stuff and and it's interesting how when you tell stories you are kind of giving someone advice but you're not actually making them feel like it's advice sometimes they they take what they want out of the story if that if that makes
2: sense yeah and i mean i think it's tempting to give advice right but i always try to keep in mind how (laughs) how dangerous it is to give advice um and in terms of what you're saying about storytelling i think it might be a little like when you when you have your first child you kind of you realize all of the cliches are true oh yes yes um <laughs> and i mean i think the cliches are true here too like we're all the same but we're all different and yeah. stories kind of encapsulate that stories encapsulate the things we have in common as people and also the different experiences we have and that's how we kind of we live through our stories 100 yeah, i mean you look at the bible you look at uh, quran you look at Aesop's fables yeah um, i mean those are all
1: life lessons that someone actually was there was a, there was a, a hundred things that someone wrote a hundred things you should do or something, and you could basically look at that hundred list of hundred things and, and you could actually match them to stories that told you the same thing, like the, the rabbit and the hare. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, the, the rabbit and the tortoise is, is is related to you know being consistent and mm-hmm. and following through and and all that kind of stuff. But that was like number two on the list was be consistent and and that sort of thing. So you can d- distill it to a, to a bullet point, but the story mm-hmm. makes it far more memorable. Absolutely, uh, which is huge, and, and I think you know, with with what you're doing with video, that is so important because people are uh, visual, for the most part. Uh, we're comfortable with audio, obviously, but that connection, as you mentioned in the beginning, is is huge, hugely important.
2: And it's really true. We we consume so much video because it is a part of our storytelling brains. It really is. Yeah, 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 and and, and I think that's where you obviously read a lot. I can
1: see a whole lot of books behind you. Um, And and my my biggest worry in life is that people watch too much video. They're not going to like, I'm I'm heavily addicted to YouTube at the moment. I actually need to break it. Um, But it's because I'm getting a lot of information very quickly, but I can go read the book that I'm, that I'm reading at the same time, you know, and find the information and and sort of reinforce it. But I think a lot of people don't do that. And that that kind of worries me a little bit, but I'm, but I'm hopeful that that's a, you know, with, with all these things that we do, uh, as long as people are doing the right things and learning, that it'll be, it'll be okay.
2: I'm I'm kind of a rude, a techno optimist though. I hope not an unreflective one, but yeah, I like, I feel the same way that, that, you know, new technology makes things like learning richer. It doesn't, it doesn't push out, you know, the old stuff. Like what's the, definition of technology is something that was invented after you were born or whatever. Like th- things oh, always change, you know, and you know, we can embrace that change and make the most of it because the change is happening anyway, I think. Yeah. And, and I am watching a whole lot of startup uh YouTube
1: videos um from Harvard at the moment. And if if that wasn't available on video, if that wasn't available on YouTube, the chance for me and whoever however many other people are watching it to see it. Is, is so minute, but you need that mechanism. Um, and and that, you know, shares the knowledge, which means you basically, you know, increase everyone's knowledge, which means the next piece of knowledge is that, that much better because you've had that much more, more people using it and applying it and and improving on it. Which, you know, that's, and that's the kind of, hope, like you, the hopeful piece is that that part's happening. And we're not getting caught up watching cat videos uh, or something like that on,
2: uh, on YouTube. It's such a great point. Like we're all always standing on the shoulders of, people who came before and the more we enable that scaffolding the the more we all do together i agree youtube is an extraordinary platform like i I think we don't really talk enough or think enough about how incredible youtube is Mm. there's just everything there and you know that comes with problems too Uh, i think there have been very well publicized concerns about youtube's algorithms um and I I share those concerns, but the fact that you can access so much information on YouTube is really 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 amazing. Well, and, and, and it's
1: interesting you say it because that because yes, algorithms are a problem without a doubt. I mean, I watched some conspiracy stuff the other day, and now I like, get is conspiracy stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I you know to be fair, I enjoy watching conspiracy stuff because it's interesting. Like you you want to you want to see what people think and how they got to that that conclusion and all the rest of it, but you got to be you know, objective. But but the interesting thing for me is if I go back to my sort of example of the the older folk that I was spending the last couple of months with, those that were still in touch with with the technology that were referring to YouTube mm-hmm. as their bridge. And those that were not in touch couldn't even couldn't even get onto YouTube. Interesting. I, I, and I think how hard it is to get onto YouTube. Like how hard is it really to get onto YouTube? Mm-hmm. And, and that was like the whole, you know, how, how, how did that happen? Like, how did the, how did that divide start? Cause it's just a website in the end, but just this concept, couldn't get to it. So, and you're right. The, the technology and how it's delivered. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, I wish they would actually tell us how it worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, great. Uh Probably a good start to sort of point people in the right direction to get in contact with you, or is there something you want them to have a look at, demo, or or something like that, that uh, might explain what you guys offer?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're interested in kind of real-time video communications and you're an engineer or a product person who wants to build stuff into your applications or websites, we would love to have you come look at what we're doing at daily.co. We have a forum, you can ask questions, like we're happy to be helpful. You don't just have to be a customer, as, as I think you can tell, we love talking about this stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, so come uh, come find us well, at daily.co. Great, this has been a fantastic chat. I've, I've
1: really appreciated your time and some interesting stuff we've covered. So thank you.
2: Thank you, I'm a big fan. It's fun to get to talk to you. Great, stuff. thanks, good luck.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor, Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.